My name is Kim. And my name is Steve. And we are a week late and a dollar short. Again. Uh, sorry. So um, we want to apologize. Steve was out of town last week and I have been, we both really have been feeling a little under the weather. Um, and so we just kind of needed a break for a minute. Uh, so we took one. Yeah, but we're I back just, now. Just came back and then we were so wrapped up. I was so wrapped up trying to catch up with everything. We just, the hours faded away and there was just no time to get the show out. Yeah. But, anyway. But we're back. So thank you so very much for your patience. Um, we have wonderful, wonderful listeners. Um, thank you to everyone who has been checking out the 937 podcast too. A lot of you guys have switched over and listen, not switched over, but hopped over there and listened to the, to that show as well. Um, it's growing. Uh, we're making lots of new friends. And so thank you. So anything else you want to talk about before we start, no, start the no, show let's, proper? Let's go, ahead, let's go ahead and start. All right. So this week we're talking about um, a topic that probably affects your everyday life, but you probably don't even realize it. It's something we know that you've heard of, but you probably never gave it too much ta- thought. In 2018, 44 or 442.1 million tons transited this structure, handles 5% of the world trade. For reference, about 12% of the world trade uses the Suez Canal. So that means it's a lot of trade. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Nearly 14,000 ships transited this in 2020. In the year of the pandemic. So that's a lot. Yeah. During a pandemic. Anybody know what we're talking about? It's the Panama Canal. There is a long history to the canal. A long history. (laughs) The geopolitical importance and influence on the world has set policy and played a major role in strategy in the Western Hemisphere. Records show that 12,000 people died building the Panama Railway and over 22,000 people died during France's attempt to build a canal across Panama. About 4,850 people lost their lives to disease during the United States construction of the canal. We're going to talk more about that later. I'll cover that in a little bit more detail. We're going to talk about the history and the need for a canal, the French attempt and the actual completion of the canal by the Americans. And we're going to talk about mosquitoes and public health and the construction of the canal. Got it. We're going to cover lots of things on this episode. And by the time it's over, you're going to be an expert. So before we really get into all that, let's talk about the actual canal before we get into the history. So many people think that the Panama Canal is just a big ditch across Panama. So if you're familiar, you should be familiar. Down in Central America, Panama is long and skinny and curvy like a snake. The skinny part is one of the reasons that Panama was picked to build a canal. So, like I just said, it's just not a big ditch cut across Panama. I always thought that's what it was. No, it's not. It's a series of some things you might call a ditch, but there are cuts, there are lakes, there's different waterways that feed into this to make it to make it all work. Hmm. So, generally, we know that the Atlantic Ocean is east of Panama, and the Pacific is the west, and that's 
general that's true for North America, Central America, and South America. Sure. The Atlantic's on the east, the Pacific is on the west. But the canal runs from the Atlantic to the Pacific in a northwest to southeast manner. And because of the shape of the Isthmus of Panama, you can actually watch the sun rise in Panama. There are places in Panama you can watch the sun rise over the Pacific Ocean instead of watching it rise over the Atlantic Ocean. Interesting. Yeah. The Bridge of the Americas is on the Pacific side is about a third of a degree east of Cologne, which is on the Atlantic side. Now, still in formal nautical communications, the simplified directions southbound and northbound are used when transiting the Panama Canal. So let's go ahead and let's just take a little verbal transit from the canal from the Atlantic to the Pacific side. From the formal line of the Atlantic entrance, a ship enters Limon Bay, which is a large natural harbor. The entrance runs about five and a half miles and provides a deep water port at Cristobal. And at that port, they have facilities like the multimodal cargo exchange to and from the trains and the Cologne Free Trade Zone, which is basically a free tax-free port where you can buy about anything you want. Ooh. Yeah, tax-free. Now, I have been to Cologne, and David McCullough's description of Cologne in his book the path between the seas describes Cologne pretty accurately. Cologne is described as a very beautiful city, if observed from sea, at night, from a distance. Ouch. Yeah, ouch. Burn. A two-mile channel forms the approach to the locks from the Atlantic side. The Gatun locks are like stairs, and there are three-stage flight of locks, one and a quarter miles long when you start entering into the canal. The Gatun Locks lift the ships 87 feet to the level of Gatun Lake. So we're traveling through the canal right now. My brother, who was in the Army, was stationed in Panama, and he lived on the Pacific side. And my mom and dad were both retired teachers, and they always had the desire to live and work overseas. So they applied to the Department of Defense Dependent School System, or DODS, to go to Panama and teach the military kids stationed in Panama. With over 30 years of experience, they were they were quickly hired by Dodds, and they moved to the Atlantic side of Panama to teach school. They lived at a little place called Fort Sherman, if you're if you're familiar with Panama. Now, I tell you this to tell you that there were there was American housing on the opposite side of the Panama Canal from where the school was. Hmm. The school buses had to drive over the canal to get the kids to school. So the uniqueness of living in Panama. If a ship was transiting the canal, the school buses were delayed and the kids were not not marked tardy for being late to school because they couldn't help it. How long does it take a bus to like, or not a bus, but like a ship to go? I, like how long would the buses be delayed? I mean, does it take a ship? It depends on how big the ship was and mm-hmm. how long it'd go. But I mean, they have to fill the lock. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's, a small ship or whatever, they have to fill the lock. And I should have asked my mom this exactly how long. Yeah, I'm curious. Yeah. Like, are you delayed an hour or are you delayed like I don't know. 10 minutes? I don't know. I should have hmm. asked that. So my mom was the principal at this school over there. And the last thing she did was turn the school over to a company of military police 
before they were flown home before the invasion of Panama. Wow. So let's get back to the setup of the Panama Canal. So we said that the Gatun locks raised the ships to the level of Gatun. Um, the lake is an artificial lake formed by the building of the Gatun Dam. And Gatun Lake provides the water used to raise and lower vessels in the canal. Gravity feeds into each set of locks. Kind of like a when you flush a toilet. Yeah. There's a reservoir of water. The lake was created in 1913 by damming the Chagres River. And Gatun Lake is a key part of the Panama Canal, providing millions of gallons of water necessary to operate its locks each time a ship passes through. Now, at the time of formation, Gatun Lake was the largest man-made lake in the world. The impassable rainforest around the lake has been the best defense of the Panama Canal. And today, these areas remain practically unscathed by human interference and are one of the few accessible areas where various native Central American animal and plant species can be observed undisturbed in their natural habitat, which is pretty freaking sweet. The largest island on Gatun Lake is Barro, Colorado Island. It was established for scientific study when the lake was formed, and it's operated by the Smithsonian. Many important scientific and biological discoveries of the tropical animal and plant kingdom originated here. And Gatun Lake covers about 180 square miles, and it's a really big tropical ecological zone and part of the Atlantic Forest Corridor. Ecotourism on the lake has become an industry for Panamanians. And Gatun Lake also provides drinking water for Panama City and Cologne. Fishing is one of the primary recreational pursuits on the lake. And there are some fish in Gatun Lake. I have fish there. And the peacock bass, which are not native to the lake, but they were brought in and introduced. It's amazing. You wouldn't even use bait. You would just take your your hook and put a McDonald's straw over it, and you'd throw it in there. You just drive along. You see the water just kind of bubble up, and you just cast out in there, and you bring a fish in. Can you fish from the bank? Not really, because you gotta it's... go like out on the lake? Yeah, you pretty much need a boat to be out I'm there. I'm going to go there. I that sounds cool. The ships sail across the a lake. A lot of lot of expat Americans living in Panama. Oh my gosh! So the other day, Steve was trying to convince me to move to Dayton, Vietnam, which is not a real place, and because I told him I was never. I leaving showed Dayton. her a picture on the map. Yeah, I told him I was never leaving Dayton, and so he said, well, "What about Dayton, Vietnam?" And now apparently we're moving to Dayton, Panama. Anyway. The ships sail across the lake, 15 miles across the isthmus. Now, Steve. Yes. I'm going to show my ignorance. What is an isthmus? So an isthmus is a skinny piece of land, mm-hmm. kind of like a peninsula, but it's connected to two larger bodies of land. So just almost like a pic- land bridge. Yeah. Just look at a okay. picture of Panama on the map, and that's what an isthmus is. Okay. So Gatun Lake is the highest point of the canal, and it's fed by the Gatun River. From the lake, the Chagres River, which is, did I say that right? Chagres? Yes. Chagres? Chagres. Uh, which is a natural waterway, runs about five and a quarter miles. The Culebra Cut slices seven and three quarter mile through the mountain ridge, crosses the Continental Divide, and passes under the Centennial Bridge. And if you only knew how many times I have ad- had to ask Steve, how do you say that? How do you say this in place? What's going on? It, like, is the total opposite of the, <laughs> the way things normally for work. Steve. Yay for Steve. Finally, Steve knows things that I don't and, know. <laughs> and I don't speak Spanish at all. So, so I hope we're, saying, I hope we're yep. saying these right. Yes. So the single-stage Pedro Miguel lock, which is about seven-eighths of a mile long, is the first part of the descent 
as you're traveling to the Atlantic or to the Pacific side, and it drops you 31 feet. The canal then flows into the man-made Mia Flores Lake for one and eighth mile, and then it flows into the Mia Flores Locks. The Mira Flores locks are 54 feet above sea level. So stay with us. You know, we've come from the, the Atlantic. We raised up, went across Gatun Lake, and now we're coming back down to the Pacific side. Okay. The two-stage Mira Flores locks are one and an eighth mile long. And like we said, they bring the, the vessels transiting the canal 54 feet down to sea level. From the Mira Flores locks, Ships sail into Balboa Harbor on the Pacific side. Again, on that side, there's a multimodal capability, and here the railway meets the shipping route again. And all of this is in the vicinity of Panama City on the Pacific side. From here, vessels follow the channel that leads them to the Pacific Ocean, about eight and a quarter miles from the Miras Flores Locks and under the Bridge of the Americas. So there you go. You have now transited the Panama Canal. The total length of the canal is 50 miles or 80 kilometers. It takes ships an average of 11.38 hours to pass through the Panama Canal. Wow. The American Society of Civil Engineers have ranked the Panama, Panama Canal as one of the seven wonders of the modern world. The size of the locks determine the maximum size of the ship that can pass through. Because of the importance of the canal to international trade, many ships are built to the maximum size allowed. And these ships are have a name. They're called Panamax vessels. Do they get stuck? No, they don't get <laughs> stuck. Not like uh, in the Suez Canal. Okay. Or at least one's not happened that I know of yet. Gotcha. The cargo is restricted to about 52,500 tons because there's only 41.2 feet of draft. So... You know, you can't load the ship too much. They'll drag through the locks. They just can't do that. (laughs) The longest ship ever to transit the canal was a San Juan Prospector, which was an ore bulk oil carrier. It was 973 feet long with a beam or width of 106 feet. Wow. Initially, the locks at Katoon were designed to be 94 feet wide. So it could have got stuck. It could have got stuck. But in 1908, the United States Navy requested that the locks be increased to a width of 118 feet to allow the passage of U.S. naval ships. Eventually, they compromised and the locks were set at 110 feet wide. Holy smokes. So if it's this, a big operation. If this San Juan prospector had a width of 106 feet, the locks are 110 feet. So it literally had two feet on either side. Yeah. That I have, is tight. I have seen pictures of battleships going through, not as long, but a little bit wider to where there's like four to six inches Holy on each side. Holy smokes. Yep. yep. I would be holding my breath. Suck it in. Uh, the steel gate or the steel lock gates measured an average of six and a half feet thick and 64 feet wide and 66 feet high. So these are big boys. They're big gates. In 1928, the aircraft carrier Saratoga crossed the canal and there were some problems. The Panama Canal pilots were unprepared to handle the significant flight deck overhang of aircraft carriers. Oops. And the Saratoga knocked over all the adjacent concrete lampposts while passing through the Katoon locks. Bad form, Navy. 
It's the size of the lock, specifically the Pedro Miguel locks, along with the height of the Bridge of the Americas at Balboa that determine the Panamax metric and limit the size of the ships that use the canal. In 2006, the third set of locks project created larger locks, allowing bigger ships to transport through deeper and wider channels. We'll talk more about that later at the end of the show. So how much does it cost to transit the Panama Canal? A lot. I'm sure it's not free. It's not cheap. As you can imagine, it's not a simple process to figure out how much a ship has to pay to cross the canal. Tolls for the canal are set by the Panama Canal Authority and are based on vessel type, size, and type of cargo. Okay, now this is going to get really bureaucratic, but we did this on a purpose. Uh, so you can understand how complicated it is. It's not just you go through and I, stick your ATM <laughs> and drive on through. I skimmed through this and I my eyeballs started bleeding. So hopefully I can make it entertaining for you. It's complicated. All right, get ready. So for container ships, the toll is assessed on the ship's capacity expressed in 20-foot equivalent units, or TEUs. A TEU. Okay. One TEU is the size of a standard intermodal shipping container. So those are the big containers you see on the pictures right. of so the like, ships. Yeah. Like the one that was stuck so, in the Suez Canal? Yeah. Those are the standard so shipping containers. So that's a TEU. Effective April 1st, 2016, this toll went from $74 US per loaded container to $60 per TEU capacity plus $30 per loaded container for a potential $90 per TEU when the ship is full. That's so, yeah. And so basically, essentially in 2016, it went from $74 to $90 per TEU. Yes. A Panamax container ship may carry, get ready, up to 4,400 TEU. So what's that breakdown to, Kim, per ship? So if you are, if you have a fully loaded Panamax container ship, you're going to be paying $396,000 to get across the Panama Canal. That's a lot. That's a lot. So when you wonder how, why your goods and services are so expensive, that might have something to do with it. But it is still cheaper than going around the... It, yes, yeah. okay. that is true. Um, so anyway, the toll is calculated differently for passenger ships and for container ships carrying no cargo. As of April 1st, 2016, the ballast rate is $60 US, which is down from $65.60 per TEU. I don't know what a ballast rate is, but there you go. Passenger vessels in excess of 30,000 tons pay a rate based on the number of berths, in other words, the number of passengers that can be accommodated in permanent beds. The per berth charge since April 1st, 2016 is $111 for unoccupied berths and $138 for occupied berths. So $138 per room per occupied room. Occupied room. So do they come on board and count? I don't or know. Or they just have to trust. That's a like a really nice hotel room. I feel like $138 is a pretty nice hotel room. And that's what you're getting charged for. Just a pass. Yeah. In 2007, this fee greatly increased the tolls for such ships. Passenger vessels of less than 30,000 tons or less than 33 tons per passenger are charged according to the same per ton schedule as our freighters. Almost all major cruise ships have more than 33 tons per passenger. So the rule of thumb for cruise line comfort is generally given as a minimum of 40 tons per passenger. And I'm sure every bit of that, that the cruise ship lines is passed on to you. Oh, no yeah. doubt. Yep. 
Now, on Sell April... Sell with us and we'll pay your toll through the canal. Uh, yeah. On April 1st, 2016, an even more complicated toll system oh, was really? introduced. Having the Neopanamax locks at a higher rate. What the heck is a Neopanamax now? Bigger ship. Neopanamax locks at a higher rate in some cases. Natural gas transport as a new separate category and other changes. I wonder if they just sit around like, how can, how can we, we get milk them for more money? Yeah, money? Yeah, oh yeah. How can we get another dime out <laughs> of them? This is crazy talk. As of October 1st, 2017, there are modified tolls and categories of tolls in effect. Small, so less than 125-foot vessels, up to 583 PCUMS. What the heck is a PCUMS? Ugh. Five tons. 583 net tons when carrying passengers or cargo, or up to 735 net tons when in ballast, or up to 1,048 fully loaded displacement tons are assessed minimum tolls based upon their length overall, according to some table. In other words, like this is a bunch of BS. So the most expensive like passenger toll for canal passage to date was charged on April 14th, 2010 to the cruise ship Norwegian Pearl, which paid $375,000 as $375,600 US. Which is just about what a fully loaded Panamax goes through. That's a lot. I wonder how big that Norwegian Pearl is if it's still out. I'm going to look that up when we're done. Guess what cruise ship I want to go on next? Anyway, the average toll is around $54,000 US. So it's a lot smaller. Yeah, but that's still a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, The highest fee for priority passage charged through the transit slot auction system was US $220,300. Let's create create another way. It's like the fast pass at Disney World. (laughs) Okay. Okay. That was paid on August 24th, 2006 by the Panamax tanker. Ericusa? So I wonder if like a German name. So I wonder if like they have livestock. So instead of sitting out in the heat of Panama and so they pay a fast pass Hmm. to get through the canal quicker. Interesting. I wonder do I wonder how much livestock goes through the canal. I don't know. I don't know. I never really thought I again, like we said up top, we this not something I really think about too much. Um Anyway, that ship bypassed a 90-ship queue waiting for the end of maintenance to work on the Gatun lock and thereby avoided a seven-day delay. The normal fee would have just been $13,430, but they paid $220,300, so yeah. that must have been some pretty important cargo. Yeah, I'm, I'm betting that is for like livestock or live cargo or stuff that would spoil or yeah, whatever, I or know. I don't know. Could be some rich dude waiting on his diamonds or something. Who knows? I'm going to jump ahead of those 90 ships. I guess. The lowest toll ever paid was 36 cents, which is equivalent to $5.43 in 2020 by American Richard Halliburton, who swam the Panama Canal in 1928. So even if you're going to swim it, you still got to pay the toll, which is so simple to figure out. (laughs) Nothing to it. Nothing to it. So the... Like it is, we brought that to you and tried to keep it as entertaining as possible Ooh, a lot. just to demonstrate how complicated it, it is. I, how would you like to be the person? I that, guess they were like, trying to match it is how complicated it was to build. Let's let's complicate this system as much just to try to figure out the toll to get through ugh, it. I would not want to have anything to do with operation of the Panama Canal. So that's the eighth wonder of the world is figuring out what the toll is. <laughs> 
So the Panama Canal serves more than 144 of the world's trade routes. The majority of canal traffic comes from the all-water route from Asia to the United States East and Gulf Coast. Building the Panama Canal was one of the largest and most difficult engineering projects ever undertaken. The second most difficult project undertaken was figuring out the toll. (laughs) The need for a canal was obvious. Maritime traffic needed a way to reduce the time for ships to travel between the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. Besides distance, they needed a path to avoid the lengthy and the hazardous route of Cape Horn, which was around the southernmost tip of South America via the Drake Passage or the Straits of Magellan. An even less popular route was through the Arctic Archipelago and through the Bering Strait. And, of course, that was very weather-dependent on Mm. ice and whatever. Yeah. So no one wanted to go that way. So, anyway. Not super safe. No. Think of the Titanic. (laughs) The earliest record regarding a canal across the Isthmus of Panama was in 1534. So we said the history goes back a long time. Yeah. When Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor and King of Spain ordered a survey for a route through the Americas in order to ease the voyage for ships traveling between Spain and Peru. The Spanish were seeking to gain a military advantage over the Portuguese. In 1668, the English physician and philosopher Sir Thomas Brown speculated that some isthmus have been eaten through by the sea and others cut by the spade. So basically he said erosion and digging the ditch. And if the policy were permit, that of Panama in America were most worthy the attempt, it being but a few miles over and would open a shorter cut into the East Indies and China. In 1788, the American Thomas Jefferson, who was then the minister to France, suggested that the Spanish should build the canal since they controlled the colonies where it would be built. He said that this would be less a less treacherous route for ships than going around the southern tip of South America and the tropical ocean currents would naturally widen the canal after construction. But during an expedition from 1788 to 1793, Alessandro Malaspina, did I say that right? I think so. Malaspina outlined the plans for construction of a canal. Given the strategic location of Panama and the potential of its narrow isthmus separating the two great oceans, Other trade links in the area were attempted over the years. The ill-fated Darien scheme was launched by the Kingdom of Scotland in 1698 to set up an overland trade route. Generally inhospitable conditions thwarted the effort, and it was abandoned in April 1700. So, Lots of people wanted to, saw the the potential. They they knew they, they wanted this route. Yeah. Overland, by ship whatever, they knew they had to have a route over through there. They really wanted it. Canals were not a new thing during this period because a lot of canals were being built in other countries in the late 18th and 19th centuries. The success of the Erie Canal right here in Ohio and New York, through which basically the Erie ran through central New York and the United States in the 1820s, and the collapse of the Spanish Empire in Latin America resulted in growing American interest and building an interoceanic canal. So lots of interest. I mean, people realizes they real realizes people <laughs> realize they need this route to do this. So beginning in 1826, U.S. officials began no- negotiations with Grand Colombia, 
which is present-day Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador, and Panama, hoping to gain access to build a canal. You know who I about could have figured it out? Me. Holland or Italy. They have a lot of different waterways. Okay. I bet they could have done it. Anyway, jealous of their newly gained independence and fearing domination by the more powerful United States, President Simon Bolivar and New Granada officials declined American offers. No, <laughs> we're not going to do it. Great Britain attempted to develop a canal in 1843. According to the New York Daily Tribune, August 24th, 1843, the bearings of London and the Republic of New Granada entered into a contract for the construction of a canal across the Isthmus of Darien, which is the Isthmus of Panama. They referred to it as the Atlantic and Pacific Canal, and it was a wholly British endeavor. Projected for completion in five years, the plan was never carried out. Hmm. At the same time, other ideas were floated, including a canal and or a railroad across Mexico's Isthmus of Tehuantepec. That didn't develop either. Lots of good ideas out there. Yeah. People were really trying hard to get between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Without selling all the way around South America. Right. Or we're going broke. North of Canada. In 1846, the Malarino Bidlack Treaty, negotiated between the U.S. and New Granada, granted that the United States transit rights and the right to intervene militarily in the Isthmus. So now you can see where the geopolitical stuff is mm -hmm. really coming into play right here. In 1848, the discovery of gold There's in California gold in Hills. on the west coast of the United States generated renewed interest in a canal crossing between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. We've got to get that gold to market mm -hmm. faster. William H. Aspinwall, who had won the federal subsidy to build and operate the Pacific Mail steamships at around the, that time, benefited from the gold discovery. Aspinwell's route included steamship legs from New York City to Panama and from Panama to California with an overland portage through Panama. This route, along with an overland leg in Panama, was soon frequently traveled as it provided one of the fastest connections between San Francisco, California and the East Coast cities, taking up to about 40 days transit in total. Nearly all the gold that was shipped out of California went by the fast Panama route. Several new and larger paddle steamers were soon plying this now new route, including private steamship lines owned by American entrepreneur Cornelius Vanderbilt that made use of an overland route through Nicaragua. Now, there are legends of lost gold. Of course in there Panama. are. Yep. Of course there are. In 1850, the United States began construction of the Panama Railroad, which is now called the Panama Railway, to cross the isthmus. It opened in 1855. This overland link became a vital piece of Western Hemisphere infrastructure, greatly facilitating trade. The latter, the later canal route was constructed parallel to it as it helped clear dense forest. An all-water route between the oceans was still the goal. In 1855, William Kinnish, who was a Manx-born engineer working for the United States government, surveyed the isthmus and issued a report on a route for the proposed Panama Canal. His report was published as a book entitled The Practicability and Importance of a Ship Canal to Connect the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. I bet that was some good reading Riveting. right there. Yes. Absolutely astounding. In 1877, Armand Recluse, an officer with the French Navy, and Lucien Napoleon Bonaparte Wise, both engineers, surveyed the route and published a French-proposed canal. 
Well, the French had achieved success in building the Suez Canal in the Mideast. Didn't they, though? Look, I know what you're referencing because the one <laughs> ship got stuck in the canal. But yes, the French did build a very successful Suez Canal through the through the Mideast. While it was a lengthy lengthy project, they were encouraged to plan for a canal to cross the Panamanian Isthmus. The first attempt to construct a canal through Panama began on January 1st, 1881. The project was inspired by the diplomat Ferdinand Lesseps, who was able to raise considerable funds in France as a result of huge profits generated by his successful construction of the Suez Canal. So, again, this is a very complicated thing. It's not let's just go dig and dig build a, a canal. Yeah. You have to raise funds oh, yeah. to, to do it's this. It's not cheap and there has to build to be, the seventh wonder of the world. And there has to be a public interest in doing oh, this. Yeah. Yeah. So, very, very complicated to make this happen. Oof. Although the Panama Canal was only 40% as long as the Suez Canal... It was much more of an engineering challenge due to the combination of tropical rainforest, the the terrible, hot, humid climate of Panama, and the need for locks, and the lack of any ancient route to follow. So there was no natural trail yeah. or trace for them to follow. Basically, they had to cut across over the, the Panamanian Continental Divide Blaze to do a this. trail. You got to be yeah. literal trailblazers here. Delesseps wanted a sea-level canal, just like he'd built the Suez Canal, but he visited the site only a few times during the dry season, which only is about four months of the year. So he just got lucky on his visits, right? Yeah, it wasn't raining. His men were totally unprepared for the rainy season, during which the Chagres River, where the canal started, became a raging torrent rising up to 35 feet. Whoops. So they hadn't done enough study, and they didn't know enough about what they were doing. And uh, yeah, Ignorance will get you every time. What do we say? Do your, do your own research <laughs> and educate yourself. The dense jungle was alive with venomous snakes, insects, spiders, but the worst challenges were yellow fever, malaria, and other tropical diseases, which killed thousands of workers. By 1884, the death rate was over 200 per month. Public health measures were ineffective because nobody knew that it was the lowly mosquito which was causing the bulk of these problems. I am not a fan of buzzing bugs. I don't, uh, bees are okay, but I don't like mosquitoes. I don't like flies. Flies are, ugh, hate flies. Anyway. Conditions were downplayed in France to avoid recruitment problems. Shh, but we're the, not going to talk about this. But the high mortality rate made it difficult to maintain an experienced workforce. And that's why isn't be, Pierre coming home? I know that's going to be hard. Like you can downplay it, but when they start like just not coming back, that you got a problem. Workers had to continually mine the, widen the main cut through the mountain at Culebra and reduce the angles of the slopes to minimize landslides in the canal. Steam shovels were used in the construction of the canal purchased from Bay City Industrial Works, a business owned by William L. Clements in Bay City, Michigan. Bucket chain excavators were manufactured by both Alphonse Couvreau and Weyer in Richmond and Butte were also used. Other mechanical and electrical equipment was limited in capability and steel equipment rusted rapidly in the rainy climate. Now, my mom said that one time during the the school year, the air conditioner went out, and the puddles of water because of the humidity were so the humidity was so thick 
that the janitors had to go through and mop the floors oh because there were puddles of water. Yeah, so yeah, that gives not, you an idea of how we're not humid it is. Dayton, Panama. That is not a thing that is happening. Um, in France, De La Sepp kept the investment and supply of workers flowing long after it was obvious that the targets were not being met, but eventually the money ran out. Oops. The French effort went bankrupt in 1889 after reportedly spending the equivalent of U.S. $287 million dollars now that's in 1889 money. That's a lot. An estimated 22,000 men died from disease and accidents, and the savings of 800,000 investors were lost. All for naught. I bet that was hard to go back to France. No kidding. Work More was, on this story, though. Work was suspended on May 15th in the ensuing scandal known as the Panama Affair. Some of those deemed responsible were prosecuted, including Gustave Eiffel. Who built the Eiffel Tower. Mm -hmm. De Lesseps and his son Charles were found guilty of misappropriation of funds and sentenced to five years imprisonment. This sentence was later overturned and the father at age 88 was never actually served any prison time. Now in 1894, a second French company, they, they just won't give up, will they? We will try again. <sighs> the company Nouvelle de, du Canal de Panama was created to take over the project. A minimal workforce of a few thousand people was employed primarily to comply with the terms of the Colombian Panama Canal concession to run the Panama Railroad and to maintain the existing excavation equipment in, in usable condition. The company sought a buyer for all these assets with an asking price of $109 million. In the meantime, they continued with enough activity to maintain the franchise. So basically, it was just for show. They went over there to try to salvage what they could. Mm, good luck. Philippe Bunel Varilla, the French manager of the new Panama Canal Company, eventually managed to persuade De Lesseps that a lock and lake canal was much more realistic than a sea level canal. Because you had to cut across I mean, all those mountains. Clearly, the sea level canal is working out so well for you. Yeah, apparently, Delesseps never walked from the Atlantic <laughs> to the Pacific side. I mean, okay. you know. <laughs> so at this time, the President and Senate of the United States were interested in establishing a canal across the isthmus with some, fa some people favoring a canal across Nicaragua. And others were saying, no, we need to purchase the French interest and build this canal in Panama. Well, the Nicaragua route was preferred because it was shorter than Panama. Not it would have been longer crossover land, but the ships wouldn't have had to sell those extra miles right. down to Panama because Panama is south of Nicaragua. However, at this time, a letter was mailed from Nicaragua to the officials in Washington, and this letter happened to have a postage stamp of a volcano, which volcanoes were abundant in Nicaragua. Nicaragua. So people said... Maybe it's not wise to build a canal with all these volcanoes and earthquakes and stuff like that. All yes. because of a postage stamp. All because of a postage stamp. Never take history for granted, so my friends. Nicaragua was abandoned and said, we're going to do this canal a little bit further south in Panama. In June 1902, the U.S. Senate voted in favor of the Spooner Act to pursue the Panamanian option, provided the necessary rights could be obtained. On January 22, 1903, 
The Hay-Heron Treaty was signed by the United States Secretary of State, John M. Hay, and Colombian uh, Charge, um, Dr. Tomas Heron. I think that's how you say his name. For $10 million and an annual payment, it would have granted the United States a renewable lease in perpetuity from Colombia on the land proposed for the canal. The treaty was ratified by the U.S. Senate on March 14, 1903, but the Senate of Colombia did not ratify it. Politics, politics, politics. I mean, just so really think of this. Of it, there's so much more than just the engineering portion oh, of this. There's so much to there's it. There's the money, the politics. The it's, little guys that are dying from mosquito bites. Yeah. Bunavarilla told President Theodore Roosevelt and Hay of a possible revolt by Panamanian rebels. And who, now we got war. <laughs> who aimed to separate from Colombia and hoped that the United States would support the rebels with U.S. troops and money. Roosevelt changed tactics based in part on the Malarino Bidlack Treaty of 1846 and actively supported the separation of Panama from Colombia. Shortly after recognizing Panama, he signed a treaty with the new Panamanian government under similar terms um, to the Hey Heron Treaty. Politics, politics, politics. Uh, always. Yeah. On November 2nd, 1903, U.S. warships blocked sea lanes against possible Colombian troop movements en route to put down the Panamanian Rebellion. Panama declared independence on November 3rd, 1903. So just, it, it just amazes me how much is going on just to make this happen. <sighs> the United States quickly recognized the new nation. Oh, okay, so you declared uh, independence. We recognize you officially. <laughs> okay. This happened so quickly that by the time the Colombian government in Bogota launched a response to the Panamanian uprising, U.S. troops had already entered the rebelling province. It should also be noted that the Colombian troops dispatched to Panama were hastily assembled conscripts with very little training. like, hey, you, you, didn't stand you a chance. and you, get on the boat, you're going to Panama. For what? <laughs> <laughs> okay. While these conscripts may have been able to defeat the Panamanian rebels, they would not have been able to defeat the United States Army troops that were supporting the Panamanian rebels. The reason why an army of conscripts was sent was because this was the best response the Colombians could gather due to the fact that Colombia was still recovering from civil war within Colombia that was between liberals and conservatives from October 1899 to November 1902, known as the Thousand Days War. Colombia, get your stuff together. You are a hot mess. With the United States being fully aware of these conditions, we will take advantage of this <laughs> and even incorporating them into the planning of the Panama intervention as the U.S. Acted, acted as an arbitrator between the two sides. With the peace treaty that ended the Thousand Day War being signed on the USS Wisconsin on November 21st, 1902. Did they celebrate with cheese and beer? Probably. While in port, the United States also brought engineering teams to Panama with the peace delegation to begin planning for the canal's construction before the United States had even gained rights to build the canal. It's always good to be prepared. We're very presumptuous. It, it's always good to be prepared. I think they had a good clue that this was about to happen. Mm. All these factors result in the Colombians being able to put down, unable to put down the Panamanian Rebellion and expel the United States troops occupying today what is the independent nation of Panama. They're just like, you know what, we're tired, whatever, yeah. do what you want. And the soldiers, they probably didn't care. No, they just no. wanted to go no, home. I just want, I'm so tired of fighting. 
On November 6, 1903, Philippe Bunel Varilla, as Panama's ambassador to the United States, signed the Hay-Bunel-Varilla Treaty, granting rights to the United States to build and independently administer the Panama Canal Zone and its defenses. So the Panama Canal Zone was 10 miles wide, basically. Hmm. This is sometimes misinterpreted as the 99-year lease because of misleading wording included in Article 22 of the agreement. Article 22, which meant there was Article 1, 2, 3, (laughs) all that. Okay, so almost immediately, the treaty was condemned by many Panamanians as an infringement on their country's new national sovereignty. I mean, okay, I get it, but we kind of helped you get your sovereignty, so maybe the just do us a solid. This would later become a contentious diplomatic issue among Colombia, Panama, and the United States. President Roosevelt famously stated, I took the isthmus, started the canal, and then left Congress not to debate the canal, but to debate me. Several parties in the United States called this an act of war on Colombia, the New York Times described the support given to the by the United States to Bunavarilla as an act of sordid conquest. The New York Evening Post called it a vulgar and mercenary venture. The U.S. maneuvers are often cited as the classic example of U.S. gunboat diplomacy in Latin America and the best illustration of what Roosevelt meant by the old African adage, speak softly and carry a big stick and you will go far. So basically nothing's changed in politics. No, not at all. After the revolution in 1903, the Republic of Panama became a U.S. protectorate until 1939. In 1904, the U.S. purchased French equipment and excavations, including the Panama Railroad, for $40 million, of which $30 million related to excavations completed, primarily the... Culebra. Thank you. The Culebra cut, valued at about $1 per cubic yard. The United States also paid the new country of Panama $10 million, and a $250,000 payment each following year. That's like less Nothing. than one shot. I know, it's such oh, okay. a drop of the bucket. Well, back then it was a lot. I guess. In 1921, Colombia and the United States entered into the Thompson-Urusia Treaty, in which the United States agreed to pay Colombia $25 million, $5 million upon ratification, and four $5 million annual payments, and grant Colombia special privileges in the Canal Zone. In return... Colombia finally recognized Panama as an independent nation. So basically, they were paid off to yeah. keep quiet. Okay. Yeah. So I bet you thought they just went down and they started digging the canal. I well, mean, I think we, we have, do what we want. That's pretty presumptuous. We just like basically bought this puppet nation. Okay. We paid off the. We paid off. We said, all right. We're going to help you with your rebellion. You're going to give us the Panama Canal, and we're going to pay off Colombia to make sure they recognize you. Yeah, that's pretty much how it went down, to (laughs) sum it all up. So, like we said, I bet you thought we just went down there and just started digging the canal. Why not? We just did all this other stuff. (laughs) We. No, I mean, talking before this. Oh, okay. all, All this leading up to this. Gotcha. Before we even started digging. The U.S. formally took control of the canal property on May 4, 1904, inheriting from the French a depleted workforce and a vast jumble of buildings, infrastructure, and equipment, much of it in poor condition that it couldn't even be used. It's a fixer-upper. <laughs> With Chip and, uh, what's her name? Chip and JoJo. We need to go down there and work on this. 
A U.S. government commission, the Ismanian Canal Commission, the ICC, was established to oversee construction. It was given control of the Panama Canal Zone over which the United States exercised sovereignty. That would be what we what we just said was yeah. the Panama Canal Zone, which is 10 miles either, ten miles wide. from the canal. Yeah, yeah. wide. Okay. The commission reported directly to the Secretary of War, William Howard Taft, and was directed to avoid the inefficiency and corruption that had plagued the French 15 years earlier. That's why DeLapsus and his son went to jail, I guess. On May 6, 1904, at least what they were accused of. Right. On May 6, 1904, President Theodore Roosevelt appointed John Finley Wallace, formerly the chief engineer and finally general manager of the Illinois Central Railroad, as the chief engineer of the Panama Canal Project. Overwhelmed by the disease-plagued country and forced to often use dilapidated French infrastructure and equipment, as well as being frustrated by the over-bureaucratic ICC, Wallace resigned abruptly in June 1905. He He's basically, like, I've had no a, thanks. Nope, I've, I'm I don't, good. I don't need this. I don't need to get mosquito bit <laughs> right? and, and get yellow fever. Pick somebody else. He, was succeed, he, he did. He was succeeded by John Frank Stevens, who was a self-educated engineer who built the Great Northern Railroad. I have faith in this guy. Stevens was not a member of the ICC. He increasingly viewed its bureaucracy as a serious hindrance, bypassing the commission and sending requests and demands directly to the Roosevelt administration in Washington, D.C. See, that's what I like about John Frank Stevens. Self-educated. He, self, he didn't rely on anybody else. Like, he taught himself. He built up the Great Northern Railroad on his own. He said, you know what? I'll dig your canal. I'll dig your canal. Forget the ICC. I'm going to go straight, cut out the middleman. I'm going straight to the top. One of Stevens' first achievements in Panama was in building and rebuilding the housing, cafeterias, hotels, water systems, repair shops, and warehouses, and other infrastructure that was needed by the thousands of incoming workers to build the canal. It's Steve- like the Milton Hershey of the Pennsylvania, of the. Panama Canal. Stevens began the recruitment effort to entice thousands of workers from the United States and other areas to come to the canal zone to work and try to provide accommodation in which the incoming workers could work and live in reasonable safety and comfort. He also reestablished and enlarged the railway, which was to prove crucial in transporting the millions of tons of soil from the cut through the mountains to the dam and the Chagres River. Now, disease was a long-standing concern for building the canal, and they knew something had to be done. So the Canal Commission appointed Colonel William Crawford Gorgas in March 1904 as head of hospitals and sanitation. Under his leadership, many new departments of sanitation were founded, covering different aspects of the sanitation problem. Commissions were also formed to look after the basic welfare of laborers. What a concept! The sanitation work included clearing land and establishing quarantine facilities. The most ambitious part of the sanitation program, though, was undoubtedly the effort to eradicate the mosquitoes who carried yellow fever and malaria from the canal zone. There was initially considerable resistance to this program as the mosquito theory was still considered controversial (laughs) and unproven. The more things change. Yep. Thank goodness social media had not been invented or we may never have had the Panama Canal. Could you imagine the arguments? Oh, that's just a mosquito theory. That's just a bunch of crap. (laughs) 
I'm not getting my vaccination against yellow fever. Anyway, however, with the support of chief engineer. What are you afraid of getting your vaccination from yellow fever? I have a natural immunity. Anyway, with the support of chief engineer John Frank Stevens, who took over the post on July 26, 1905, Gorgas was finally able to put his ideas into action. You got to prove a mosquito's doing this. <laughs> he divided. I don't trust anybody who's saying a mosquito's doing this. That if one I can't little bug. I don't believe it. Yeah. Gorgas divided Panama into 11 districts and well, Cologne, Panama earthers, into four. If the flat earthers around oh, the Panama Canal would have been whole, an easy let's dig. Let's just forget the. Oh. We're yeah. getting into the weeds now. In each district, inspectors searched houses and building and buildings for mosquito larvae. This is actually a preview of <laughs> next week's show. Oh my gosh, if you only knew what I went through. If larvae were found, carpenters were dispatched to the building and work was done to eliminate objects or places where stagnant water could collect. Mosquitoes lay their eggs on the surface of standing water, and when the larvae hatch, they live just below the surface, breathing through a siphon in their tails, which is so cool. I didn't know that. Therefore, by eliminating standing water where possible and by spreading oil on the surface of any remaining pools, the larvae could be destroyed. Okay, this would be a no-no today, too. Spreading oil well, across the waterway? No. I mean, what if you use, but what if you, not like oil oil, but like what if you use like a coconut oil or like... A natural oil. I don't know. I bet that would still work. It's a genius idea. Anyway, uh, Gorgas. I don't think they were spreading coconut oil. No, but you could now, right? I, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. If you're a, a naturologist, <laughs> let us know. Gorgas also had domestic water systems installed in urban areas around the canal zone. These systems eliminated the need for rainwater collection, which had been collected in barrels and was a place for mosquitoes to breed, obviously. The United States government also provided $20 million to give workers free medical care and burial services. Gorgas' sanitation department also provided about a ton of prophylactic quinine each year to people in the canal zone to combat malaria. They organized a major program to drain and fill swamps and wetlands around the canal zone, and many miles of ditches were dug and grass and brush were cut back over wide areas. Oiling was used in a variety of means. Workers with spray tanks were sent to spray oil on standing pools, and smaller streams were tackled by placing a dripping oil can over the waterway, which created a film of oil over each still patch of water in the stream. About 700,000 gallons of oil and 124,000 gallons of larvicide were used on the project. Gorgas also took another step in his efforts to eradicate was, mosquitoes in Panama. That was probably pure DEET, too. Ugh, fumigation. Can you imagine, like, that? if that, that like, leached into the drinking water and stuff? Ugh. I'm, I'm sure, sure it, it did. did. Oh, I'm sure it did. He fumigated the residences of Panamanians who had been confirmed to have contracted yellow fever. Pans of sulfur or pyrethium were then placed in the rooms. The right quantity of powder was weighed out, which was two pounds per thousand cubic feet, and the pans were sprinkled with wood alcohol and set alight. When the effectiveness of this procedure was realized, fumigation was extended to all of Panama. Within a year of Stevens's appointment, every building in Panama had been fumigated, using up the entire U.S. supply of sulfur and pyrethrum. Pyrethrum. I don't even know what pyrethrum is. It sounds dangerous. In 1906, only one case of yellow fever was reported, and until the end of the Panama Canal construction, there were zero. 
Gorgas's final means of attack on disease was to quarantine individuals infected with yellow fever or malaria from the rest of the workforce. Say we will about this politically, but if you're sick, stay away from people who aren't sick. Kind of like what we had to do. Pretty simple. If you were sick, you were supposed to quarantine for 10 days. Yeah. Those who were diagnosed with either disease were put into portable fever cages, which, (laughs) listen, regardless of how you feel about quarantine and COVID and all that, nobody's been put in cages yet as far as I know. So easily transportable screen structures used to prevent mosquitoes from biting an infected person and carrying the disease to others. Okay. I don't think this was a cage <laughs> like you're thinking. I think they're talking about like fly screens, but that's what they called them. Portable fever cages. Okay. It sounds terrifying. Um, Gorgas also had thousands of canal workers sleep in screen verandas as the mosquitoes that spread malaria are nocturnal and would infect most people at night. Today, the Panama Canal area is regarded as free of yellow fever and malaria. So I'm only guessing, but I'm betting many of these procedures would not be okay (laughs) today. Yeah, probably not. Again, let's just go back and think. Okay, aside from the engineering project of digging the canal. There's so much to and, this. And building that was probably dams, the easiest part, honestly. And building dams. They're building railroads. They have to go down there, build an infrastructure, build hospitals. They have to think about public health, all the diplomatic stuff that's going on. Oh, yeah. This is it's an incredibly massive project to build this that's canal. That's I'm saying. Probably the engineering of the canal was probably the easy Easiest part. Easiest thing, yeah. Yeah. Put the dynamite here, blow it, and then scrape it out. Right. Yeah. In 1905, a U.S. engineering panel was commissioned to review the canal design, which had not been finalized. In January 1906, the panel, in a majority of eight to five, recommended to President Roosevelt a sea-level canal as it had been attempted by the French. Oh, no. But in 1906, well, we know it doesn't happen. (laughs) Spoiler alert. But in 1906, Stevens, who had seen the Chagras in full flood, was summoned to Washington. He declared a sea level approach is to be an entirely untenable proposition. He argued in favor of a canal using a lock system to raise and lower ships from a large reservoir 85 feet above sea level and then lower them back down again. This would create the largest dam, Gatun Dam, and the largest man-made lake, Gatun Lake, which would be the largest in the world at that time. The water to refill the locks would be taken from Gatun Lake by opening and closing enormous gates and valves and letting gravity propel the water from the lake down to the locks so the ships could rise and lower. Gatun Lake would connect to the Pacific through the mountains at Galliard, or the Culebra Cut, Stevens successfully convinced Roosevelt of the necessity and feasibility of this alternative scheme. The construction of a canal with locks required the excavation of more than 170 million cubic yards of material over and above the 30 million cubic yards that had already been excavated by the French. Holy cow. As quickly as possible, the Americans replaced or upgraded the old unusable French equipment with new construction equipment that was designed for a much larger and faster scale of work. 102 large railroad-mounted steam shovels were purchased, 77 from Bucyrus Erie, and 25 from Marion Power Shovel Company. These were joined by enormous steam-powered cranes, giant hydraulic rock crushers, concrete mixers, dredges, 
pneumatic power drills, nearly all of which were manufactured by new extensive machine building technology developed and built in the United States. So all this stuff then had to be transported down there. Mm. The railroad also had to be comprehensively upgraded with heavy-duty, double-tracked rails over most of the line to accommodate the new rolling stock of train. In many places, the new Gatun Lake flooded over the original rail line, and a new line had to be constructed above Gatun's lakes, above Gatun Lake's waterline. In 1907, Stevens resigned as chief engineer. His replacement, appointed by President Theodore Roosevelt, was United States Army Major George Washington Gothels of the United States Army Corps of Engineers. Soon to be promoted to lieutenant colonel and later to general, he was a strong West Point-trained leader and civil engineer with experience in canals unlike Stevens. Goethals directed the work in Panama to be a successful conclusion in 1914, two years ahead of the target date of June 10, 1916. Goethals divided the engineering and excavation work into three divisions, the Atlantic, the Central, and the Pacific. The Atlantic Division, under Major William L. Siebert, was responsible for the construction of the massive breakwater at the entrance to Limon Bay and the Gatun Locks and their three-and-a-half-mile approach channel at the, the huge Gatun Dam. The Pacific Division, under Sidney B. Williamson, who was the only civilian member of this high-level team, was he was responsible for the Pacific three-mile breakwater in Panama Bay the approach channel to the locks and the Mia Flores and Pedro Miguel locks and their associated dams and reservoirs. What a huge, massive so project. Much. The Central Division under Major Dave Dubow, Galliard of the United States Army Corps of Engineers, was signed one of the most difficult parts, excavating the Culebra Cut through the Continental Divide to connect Gatun Lake to the Pacific Panama Canal locks. On October 10, 1913, President Woodrow Wilson sent a signal from the White House by telegraph which triggered the explosion that destroyed the Gamboa Dyke. This flooded the Culebra Cut, thereby joining the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans via the Panama Canal. Yay! The Alexandra Lavalle, which was a floating, floating crane built by Lobnitz and Company, and launched in 1887, was the first self-propelled vessel to transit the canal from ocean to ocean. The vessel crossed the canal from the Atlantic in stages during construction, finally reaching the Pacific on January 7, 1914. So kind of like basically trailed right along mm. doing, doing the work. Hmm. The SS Cristobal, a cargo and passenger ship built by Maryland Steel and launched in 1902 as SS Tremont, on August 3rd, 1914, was the first ship to transit the canal from ocean to ocean. Continuously, yeah. The construction of the canal was completed in 1914, 401 years after Panama was first crossed overland by a European, by Vasco Nunez de Balboa. The United, spent, the United States spent almost $500 million, which is roughly equivalent to $12.9 billion today, to finish the project. This was by far the largest engi American engineering project to date. The canal formally opened on August 15, 1914 with the passage of the cargo ship SS Ancon. The opening of the Panama Canal in 1914 caused a severe drop in traffic along Chilean ports due to shifts in maritime trade routes. You go and do something good. <laughs> 
and the burgeoning sheep farming business in southern Patagonia suffered a significant setback by the change in trade routes, as did the economy of the Falkland Islands. So there were some unintended consequences to building the Panama Canal for bit. some. Those poor sheep farmers. All right. Throughout this time, Ernest Red Hallen was hired by the Isthmian Canal Commission to document the progress of the work. By the 1930s, water supply became an issue for the canal, prompting construction of the Madden Dam across the Chagres River above Gatun Lake. That was completed in 1935. The dam created Madden Lake, which provides additional water storage for the canal. In 1939, construction began on a further major improvement, which was a new set of locks large enough to carry the larger warships that the United States was building at the time and planned to continue building. The work proceeded for several years and significant excavation was carried out on the new approach channels, but the project was canceled after World War II. After World War II, U.S. control of the canal and the canal zone surrounding it became contentious. Relations between Panama and the United States became increasingly tense, and many Panamanians felt that the zone rightfully belonged to Panama. Student protests were met by the fencing in of the zone and an increased military presence there. Demands for the United States to hand over the canal to Panama increased after the Suez Crisis in 1956, when the United States used financial and diplomatic pressure to force France and the UK to abandon their attempt to retake, take, retake control of the Suez Canal, previously nationalized by the Nasser regime in Egypt. Panamanian unrest culminated in riots on Martyrs Day, January 9, 1964, when about 20 Panamanians and three to five U.S. soldiers were killed. A decade later, in 1974, negotiations toward a settlement began and resulted in the Torreos-Carter Treaty. On September 7, 1977, the treaty was signed by President of the United States Jimmy Carter and Omar Torreos, de facto leader of Panama. This mobilized the process, granting the Panamanians free control of the canal so long as Panama signed a treaty guaranteeing the permanent neutrality of the canal. The treaty led to full Panamanian control effective on noon December 31, 1999, and the Panama Canal Authority assumed command of the waterway. The Panama Canal remains one of the chief revenue sources for Panama. Yeah, as much as they're charging for a ship, it ought to be. <laughs> I bet. Between 2009 and 2016, the Panama Canal was expanded. That expansion was also called the Third Set of Locks Project, which we mentioned earlier. It doubled the capacity of the Panama Canal by adding a new lane of traffic, allowing for a larger number of ships and increasing the width and depth of the lanes and, and locks, allowing larger ships to pass. The new ships, called New Panamax, are about one and a half times the previous Panamax size and can carry twice as much cargo. Project has built two new sets of locks, one each on the Atlantic and Pacific sides, and excavated new channels to the new locks, widened and deepened existing channels, raised the maximum operating water level of Gatun Lake, and also computerized the operation of the canal. Now, at this point, I have to mention this. As I mentioned, I've, I've been to Panama twice. I have repaired the Panama Canal. Really? Yes. With Rem French equipment or? No. <laughs> Swiss. Action. So remember <laughs> I mentioned that my family lived in the canal zone. Yeah. One of the engineer's kids went to my mom's school and he took me on a special tour under the locks of the Panama Canal. I noticed a loose screw 
So I pulled out my Swiss Army knife and I tightened the screw, thereby fixing the Panama Canal and keeping it in operation. That is a 100% true story. Thank you, Steve, for your brave heroicism in the face of danger and adversity. You're welcome. Thank you. That pretty much sums up the Panama Canal. Oh, is that it? That's all? Uh, Again, what? (laughs) It's a long show. It's amazing. Like, I know we've said this before, but... People are freaking smart. All the stuff that had to happen, you just... It's not just go down there and dig the ditch. Just yeah. all the infrastructure, the hospitals, water. It's insane. everything that had to happen to make this I to make it happen. Yeah. So I'm not trying to be mean to the French. So please don't take it that way. But I so we finished watching the Olympics tonight and they're going to be in Paris next time and I hope that the French have more success building Olympic stadiums and things than they did building the Panama Canal. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. <laughs> okay, so now we've alienated all our French <laughs> listeners, just like I love on our the French. first episode we ever did. You alienated all our listeners in Georgia. Oh, that's fine. Um, I love the French, though. Please don't don't be mad at us, France. We I we have been to Paris. It is a lovely city, and the French people were nothing but kind to us when we were there. So I 100% support support the French, and I can't wait to see the Olympics in gay Paris in three years. All right. This is a long one, but you... you Now you know all about the Panama Canal. And you had a week without us, so you had it coming. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) So... How do people get hold of us, Kim? You can write us hate mail at a lost hour at gmail.com. Okay. Can you say that in French so all the French people know how to <laughs> send hate mail to you? <laughs> or you can find us at anhourofyourlife.com or you can find us on all the social medias. Um, I know I keep up on Instagram. I try to keep up on Instagram. I think you do most of the Facebook stuff. We're on Twitter, but we don't really do anything with it. So, uh, you know, but we're there. If you live in the Dayton area, in the 937 area code, listen to our other podcast called the 937 mm-hmm. Podcast to keep up with what's going on in Dayton. Yep. We release that on Wednesdays in time for you to listen to it so you can get your weekend planned out and yep. and, and figure out what you're going to do for the weekend. Lots of super fun things having been going on the past few weekends in Dayton. All right. Anything else? Uh, nope. I think that's it. All right. So from our studios in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Sources this week include MiCanalDePanama.com, History.com, TheConversation.com, Wikipedia, and David McCullough's The Path Between the Seas.